Eventually, eventually it'll come. Appreciate that, Dave. Romans 8, chapter uh, 8, verse uh, 1 through 11. I'm going to read this. This is the word of God. Can I invite you to stand with me as we uh, receive this word together? Romans 8, beginning with verse 1. The Apostle Paul is writing, and this is what he tells us. He says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness." And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Now there's a lot of good news there. Let's thanks be to God for all his goodness to us. You can be seated. Well, last Sunday we declared declared a, a very important spiritual truth. Because of sin, we are all broken. Thomas Watson declared, Sin has the devil for its father, shame for its companion, and death for its wages. And so over the last couple of weeks, we have declared how we hate the devil. His scheme has caused so many to dwell in shame. We know his scheme is to take life away. And the truth is, we are all broken because of its impact. But God looks at broken, and he calls it beautiful. He can work with broken things. He can bring to life that which is dead. But here's the thing. Here's the thing for us. For those of us who have put our trust in Christ, we know that there is a gap between these wonderful promises we have in the New Testament about being conformed to the image of Christ, about having a relationship with God, a life-giving relationship with God, and the reality, the gap is between that and the reality of me as I currently exist. That, that me that is right now, and, and that gap is because of sin. And, and I want you to know this morning that we make a serious error when we believe that we have to manage this gap on our own. We sometimes think, well, I've been saved by grace, 
But when it comes to this process of entering into that promised life, it becomes then about trying harder, about running faster, getting up earlier, doing more. And some people work themselves exhausted. And when they are tempted or when they fall, they think, well, I'm not working hard enough. I've got to give more, do more, meet more. And it becomes a vicious cycle of shame and reproach and activity. Yet Jesus made a very simple promise to his followers, a very simple promise. He said, whoever trusts in me, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of your belly, out of the very core of your existence will flow rivers of living water. That's the promise of Jesus. And the Bible teaches that flow, uh, that flow of his power in our lives happens through the person of the Holy Spirit. My question to you this morning is, what if we really believed that the Holy Spirit resides in us? That it isn't, my, my job isn't about trying harder. In a sense, my job is, don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. My job isn't to, to try harder, it's to, to get out of the Spirit's way. In fact, my job is to let Him do His job. Are you with me? Because this is what the Bible teaches. And by the way, we see this through general observation in our world. You can't make anything grow. Only God can make you grow. Man, if I could make me grow, I'd be six foot three. I'm going to promise you that. I'm a tall man in a short man's body, you know, and that's part of the reason I'm so wide, although there are other reasons too. But growth happens in a mystery. It's because of God. And you see this observation made several times in Scripture. The Bible points this truth out many times. For instance, in Isaiah 61, we read this. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow. Notice here, farmers don't cause this to grow. Humans don't cause this to grow. It's the garden soil. It's a mystery. Then he says, so in the same way, the sovereign Lord, not you, not me, will make righteousness and praise spring up before the nations. In other words, only God can make you grow. Now, I want you to know something else about spiritual growth this morning. When it comes to discipleship, when it comes to growing disciples, they are handcrafted and not mass-produced. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, a lot of people think, well, there is just some general formula. There is some blueprint that we all have to follow for us to grow as disciples. But if you think about that, that's not really the case. We see it in the realm of the physical world. What would grow an orchid would probably drown a cactus. What would feed, an, uh, uh, what would feed a mouse is going to starve an elephant. So, so the truth is, yes, there are, there are li there, living creatures all need similar things and, and there are commonalities about that. They all need light and nutrients and air and water, but they are going to need them in different amounts and in different conditions. The key is to, to growth is not to treat everything like everything else. It's to find the unique condition that will enable you to grow. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, one of the things I think it means is the follower of Christ. Yes, we want to grow the fruits of the Spirit in our lives. And there are certain things that, yes, we believe to one degree or another we're going to need in our life. Everybody needs the truth of Scripture. Everybody needs to to find a way to connect to God through prayer. Everybody needs community. We all need that stuff, but how you get it, what the rhythm of your life is going to look like, will depend largely on your personality, your makeup, how you learn. And, And the truth is, you're probably different from me. Maybe you love to read, or maybe you don't. Maybe you like to listen to an audiobook or a podcast, and some of you don't even know what a podcast is. Maybe you get a, a, a lot from listening to a sermon. I hope a lot of you do, but, but others of you may process better in a group. The problem is many Christians kind of get into this notion that they see a good-looking, well-mannered, well-meaning pastor talk about, well, this is what I do in my spiritual life, and they think, well, that's how it's done. That's how I've got to do it. And to be spiritual, i got to do this, this, and this. I mean, let me give an example. I know some people who are great at journaling. Any of you know someone who's really good when it comes to spiritual journaling? I look at my wife, and I appreciate her, her passion for journaling. She does this so very well. She prays. Much of her praying is through journaling. Now, when I was younger, I did a whole lot better at this. But over the years, it's, it's made me feel bad that I just don't keep up. Because there would be weeks or, or months or even years when, when I didn't write an entry or had to start a new one. In fact, someone told me once, if you feel bad about journaling, what you need to do is just keep two journals. And every once in a while in your journal, when there's this big gap, just write, see other journal. And, you know. But, but, but here's the thing. You know, Jesus never journaled. Jesus never did that. He, he never wrote anything. You, you can be spiritual and not journal. It seems to me that Jesus starts somewhere else. In John 7, 38, Jesus says this. He said, anybody who is thirsty. In other words, where we are to start in our discipleship and, and where we are to start with our growth is to ask the question, what do I long for? Am I thirsty? What am I thirsty for? Anybody here thirsty today? It may be a wonderful, beautiful thirst. It may be a painful thirst. But Jesus invites us to start there. What am I thirsty for? And then Jesus says, come to me. Jesus often in John says, abide in me. I I find those things where there are relationships, there are experiences, there are practices that enable me to be more aware of his presence in my life. Where are those points in my life where I am most aware of God's presence? And when I do that, then the flow of the Holy Spirit becomes much more powerful in my life and in my thoughts, in my mind. And the result of that is there is more life, there is more courage, there is more hope, there is more joy. And and this is interesting. What happens then is when you begin to find that, that sweet spot of where you abide in God, 
you find that there's an even greater longing. That it grows more intense. And so instead of a vicious cycle, we start a virtuous cycle. We just want more and more and more of him. So the Apostle Paul wrote this. He said, listen friends, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed, be different, by the renewing of your minds. And so the question that I really want to deal with this morning is, how do we renew our minds? How do we do this because I can't do this? How do I open myself up to having a renewed mind? And this morning I want to give you three things that I want you to take with you and I want you to contemplate. And the first one is this. Through the Spirit, I can learn to monitor my mind. With God's help, I can be aware of the flow of thoughts, desires, perceptions, feelings that I keep in my mind. You know, there, there's a, a, a pattern that develops in our minds. There are patterns that typify what our thoughts are. And, and those patterns shape us. For instance, I was thinking of someone this week, I won't name them, but I know a person who is just a very negative person. Do you have anyone who is just negative in your life? Nothing is ever just okay. Nothing is ever good. This martyr mentality, they always have something to complain about. It's always bad. They will always find the cloud in a sky of blue. They might compliment something, but you know it's coming. There's always the but. Why is that? Because they've gotten used to a certain pattern of thinking. Paul says here in Romans 8, the mind controlled by the sinful nature, the flesh, is death. But the mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. Now, Paul is not saying that there are some people who have a mind where it's just nothing but sinful, and other people have a mind where it's nothing but life and joy and spirit. But what he's doing here is drawing a sharp contrast, because there is a battle that every one of us in this room are fighting. And here's the idea. You can run all your thoughts through a simple grid. The Bible says we are to take every thought captive. So every thought that comes into my mind, I can ask myself a question. Is this thought going to lead me toward life and peace? Or is this thought going to lead me in to death and hardship and despair? You see, if the Spirit is working in my life, if I am being uh, captured by the Spirit, I capture that thought and I ask the question, is this truth? Is this going to lead me to courage and less anxiety? Because God does not give us a spirit of timidity. Is this thought leading me to more peacefulness or does this thought lead me toward death? If I dwell here, am I going to be stronger more at peace, more satisfied, or am I, if I dwell here, going to become more anxious, more fearful, more lustful, more greedy, more bitter? These things are going on in our minds all the time, of course. 
But I want to give you an example. As you know, we're going through a transition in our congregation. Yes, it's been hard and it's emotional. And one of the main concerns that I have in this time is about you as our church and making sure that we have the kind of leadership in our worship that we need. Now, if left unchecked, I'll tell you where my mind goes. It goes to fear. It goes to despair. It goes to self-pity. It goes to anger. And it could just be this downward spiral. That's where I could go. And listen, I am trying to practice this. God, I know this about you. You love your church. You care about your church. You love her more than I do. You know her needs. You are on the throne, and your timing is always perfect. And if I listen, I can hear the Lord say, you know, Jeff, this isn't about your leadership. This is about whether you trust me to lead. Do you trust me to lead? And I'm trying to say, Lord, I do. I do. And I think that's grace. You see, if we allow it, the Holy Spirit begins to check our thoughts. Is this thought leading me to life and peace, or does it lead me to death and despair? Are you with me? That's what Paul means when he says, we take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Every thought is leading me either toward life and peace, or it's going to lead me to death and despair. But I am going to decide, and I'm going to monitor those thoughts in my mind, because those thoughts do not get free reign. Not in me, because I am in Christ. Then, and and I'll add this, it's not just that. I believe through the Spirit, then, I can learn to direct my mind. I can learn to monitor, but I can also learn to direct my mind. I can begin to tell my mind where I want it to go. The Apostle Paul puts it like this, and you'll see him use this language quite often in the New Testament. He says, set your mind on things above. That doesn't mean think about uh, the clouds or the furniture in heaven or something like that. What's he doing? He says, set your mind on things above. Think about your God. Think about who's in charge. Think about how gracious he is. You just imagine and think about how glorious he is, how wonderful, creative, and lovely, and sufficient he is in your life right now. Let my mind take that into account. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that throne is a throne of grace and mercy, and there Jesus is interceding for us, and he is the King of kings, and he is still in charge. When we set our minds on things above, I guarantee you, we see life differently. And so very much, the scriptures teach us, we have the freedom to decide what our minds will dwell on. Listen, I can wake up and I can think, oh man, I've got so much to do today. I I don't know how I'm going to get through it all. I can wake up and think, man, all of this is going on and I've been unfairly burdened and I don't like this going on in my life and it's going to weigh me down. And before you know it, my life is just a spiral downwards into into, bitterness and anger and fear. 
or the same person can wake up, same agenda, same issues, same concerns, and they can say, as Jess reminded us this morning, this is the day the Lord has made. I can rejoice and be glad in it. I can think that thought. I can remember, I didn't make this day. He did. Every breath is a gift from God. Every breath is a gift from his hand. And one of those thoughts is going to lead towards death. And the other is going to lead toward life and peace. Paul says, through the Spirit, through his grace, operating in our lives, I can tune in to his work in me. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, here's what's on my mind right now. Here's what I'm concerned about. Here's what I'm struggling with right now. Right now I'm angry. I'm bitter. I'm afraid. Right now I'm tempted. Would you help me with this? Would you guide me? So much of living is, is, as a Christian is learning to have the activity of God become a part of every moment of consciousness. Jesus says he's flowing in our lives like a river of water. Only we can shut off the spout. So certain thoughts will lead me toward him and lead me to life. Or if we dwell there, certain thoughts will lead me to death. I can begin to set my mind, and I can develop that. And by the way, I think it's kind of like a muscle. It's something you have to practice. It's something you exercise, and you won't always get it right, but you will become better at it as you work at it. Third, through the Spirit, I would say this. We can learn to feed our minds. We can learn to, to monitor them. We can learn to direct them. But be sure, we ought to be careful here, we learn to feed our minds. I can learn to be intentional about what I put into my mind. We've all heard the phrase, haven't we? Garbage in, garbage out. Garbage in? Okay, very good. Mary and I uh, find it very difficult sometimes to find something decent to watch on television. I don't know if you have this problem. We've got cable. We've got every streaming service I think there is. And my goodness, the other night we just sat down and we thought we were watching something innocent 10 minutes in. So many, so many, many words. Never mind the other stuff. We, we just turned it off. And I'm glad my wife was willing to get up because I'm not sure at that point I was ready to, but I'm glad that she did. We've, we've got to have discernment about what we put into our minds. We, we turn that off because what we watch and give our attention to matters. Now, I want to talk to you about Scripture. Listen, we can talk about the Bible and what happens. Well... We turn the, the, the scriptures into an obligation. We turn it into a legalistic thing. But pastor, I just guess I've got to try harder. So many people, when it comes to the Bible, what they want to know is, how much am I supposed to read, pastor? How many minutes a day? How many times have I gotten that question? Seven minutes? What do I need to do so I don't feel guilty? Right? That is the question. Now, we won't put it that way, perhaps, but here's the real question. What's the minimum I can read the Bible and not make God mad at me? 
That's where a lot of us are. Let me tell you the good news. God is not mad at you for not reading the Bible. Jesus died on the cross and he delivered us from every sin. God is not up in heaven saying, listen, you didn't get in X number of time and chapters today. I am not pleased about this. I am going to cause bad things to happen to your life today because you didn't spend enough time in my word. That's not how God works. On the flip side, and you need to hear this, no matter how much you read the Bible, God will not love you any more than he loves you right now. He loves you so much. So that's not the question. The question is, what can I feed my mind so it will flourish? How, how, how can I live the best life that God intends for me? Now, listen, that's not legalism. That's not an ob obligation. It's just what's going to lead me to life? What's going to lead me to love? What's going to lead me to peace? What's going to lead me to joy? And the truth is, our minds are like a sponge. And listen, if you put a sponge in pure water, what it's going to soak up the water. It's going to be pure. But if that water is muddy, it's going to, that sponge is going to be put into that muddy water and it's going to soak up all the, the mud and the dirt and the muck and the mire. Psalm 1. Really, the, the beginning of the psalm starts out this way. It says, Blessed are those who meditate on his law day and night. Uh-oh, we hear that day and night and we think obligation, legalism, I, I got to do this. But that's really not the point of the psalm. Because it goes on to say, they are like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in season. It does not wither. Whatever they do, they prosper. You see what it's saying, right? Those who soak in God's word, those who soak in his presence, those who yield to his spirit, they yield fruit and life and joy. Their lives are just better. It's not about a duty. It's not about an obligation. It's about what you desire. Are you thirsty? Come to me. Come to me. Paul expands this. He, he says, finally, brothers in Philippians, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. That means the whole world around us is an opportunity for us to hear from God. The whole world around us is an opportunity to sense his creativity, to know his love and majesty. In just a minute, uh, I've asked Jessica Larson to come and play for us. She's a sweet, sweet violinist, and she's going to come, and we're going to just sit before the presence of the Lord and think and dwell on what is beautiful and noble and true. But I want to set this up for you. 
There's a man, maybe you've heard of him, named Joshua Bell. Anyone heard that name? He's a violinist. His parents figured out some time ago when he, that he was an unusual kid. Really, it was a, started about when he was four years old. The kid loves music so much, he would attach rubber bands to his dresser drawer and play classical music on them and adjust the pitch by opening and closing the drawers. So his parents said, you know what, maybe we ought to get this kid music lessons. <laughs> now, today he is vaunt, you know, a, a, an exalted violinist, perhaps the greatest violinist in the world. So celebrated, in fact, he has one of those stratus Stradivarius uh, uh, violins worth three and a half million dollars that he plays. It was made in 1830, which I guess is the absolute best time when those violins were made. Well, somebody came up with this idea, an interesting experiment. They said, what if Joshua Bell were to take his Stradivarius and play some of that most gorgeous music known to man, the Ave Maria, the various songs, the most transcendently beautiful music unannounced, unbilled in a metro station in Washington, D.C. at rush hour, what do you think would happen? What do you think would happen if you put Joshua Bell playing the greatest violin in, the, in, in this, this rush hour of people? So they asked some people, they asked leading musicians, and they said, well, you know, if, if he didn't get billed music like that, that's going to draw a crowd. That's going to surely touch people's hearts. Might want to be ready to do some crowd control. And boy, is he going to rake in tons of money if his case is right out in front there. So they put him there. They tried it. Imagine the world's greatest violinist playing the world's greatest music on the world's greatest violin in a metro station in Washington, D.C. And people just started walking by him. There's a video of this. 1,097 people just walked past him. Nothing. He plays eight pieces beautifully. Think about that. People would pay hundreds of dollars to get a front row seat at one of his concerts. Absolutely fascinating. He said, in fact, the acoustics of the, of the metro station were actually quite amazing. He finishes the first song. Not a single person claps. Not a single one. He continues on. A few people, a few dozen people actually pause for a moment in their walking. Everybody else, again, a thousand people just walk by. One woman had heard him in concert and she recognized him. She put $20 in his case. Well, this began a gush. The rest of the crowd gave him $12.37. <laughs> now, why didn't they stop to listen? They were busy. They were worried. They had things to do. They did not know that the master was at work. All they had to do was pause. And it would have been the moment of a lifetime. The master was at work. Now I want to tell you something this morning. 
I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what the mess is that you're involved in. I don't know what the concerns are. But don't miss this truth. You're busy. You've got a lot of things going on. You don't know how it's all going to work out. Listen, the master is at work. And maybe from time to time, we just need to get out of the way. And our job is to let him do his job. And he's working in your life. He's working in our church. He's working in me. And I know that I know that I know that if you're here today, he wants to work in you. The master is at work. As Jess comes, I want to just say then, would you in this moment give him your anxieties? Give him your failures? Give him those anxious thoughts, those bitter thoughts, those anxious Just give it to him. Remind him that, Lord, you're in charge and I'm not. You're worthy. You're the master. Do in me what you want to accomplish I just surrender myself to you. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, as we, as we stop and pause and listen, I pray that your spirit will speak to us. That we will hear your voice. That the throne of grace, out of that would flow a river of living water that will flow into our souls and very being right now. And Lord, would be us to us life because we're thirsty. May we know your presence. May we know that you're working. May we know that you are creative and glorious and majestic and worthy of our praise. May we know that we're yours. Accomplish your purposes in me, in our church. I pray this through Jesus Christ. In him, we are made whole.